Welcome to the Ralph Moore Podcast. Gain the leadership advantage as Ralph pulls wisdom from his bag of over 50 years experience in planting and leading multiplying churches. Our goal is to help you live as a leader you'd want to follow. You'll learn about making disciples and planting churches, but beyond that, you'll gain practical wisdom about subjects like how to manage your team, handling difficult people, pulling a congregation off a growth plateau, and even money management. Hi, and welcome to the podcast. Today, we're getting to talk with Gerald Jones. He is the pastor of a 150-year-old congregation, and he's doing this at a time when a lot of people are quitting, dropping out of the ministry, and a lot of the reasons are, you know, I feel lonely, I feel isolated, I'm pastoring an old church, and there's a guy who's prevailing in all of that, and so we want to hear what he's doing, and, and he's doing some pretty exciting things. So, Gerald, welcome to the to the podcast. Thanks for being with us. It's good to be with you. Thank you. So, Gerald, kind of, you know, what, what are your roots spiritually? Where, where did you get started with Jesus and how? Um, I started in a church. I think it was an offshoot from the Seventh-day Adventists. And it was, it was a really good experience as far as um, living in community with people. Uh, one of the ways that we did that was we would, every single week when we met in a gym, we would have to set up folding chairs and it wasn't, nobody was hired to do that. So, so families would show up early, kids would help. And we frequently shared meals and, and there were, there were some unhealthy aspects of, of how they went about things. But an interesting thing in my story in doing that through age 12 is there was so much emphasis on the old Testament that I had this, this weird opportunity to, to, to live more by by Jewish guidance, and then in my early teens, discover Jesus' work, and and um, and so I had this view of atonement as an annual event, um, and and this understanding of the Old Testament narrative. They were really, really good at teaching the scriptures, and so as people began to understand the scriptures and explore the New Testament beyond what they were being instructed in, people started looking around. And this thing that was good for a while now seems to be focused on on a power struggle and 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 these and these rules that are heaped on people in shame. Um, so my parents recognizing that pulled us out of that space. Um, it was hard. We had a lot of friends and family there, and um, many people who haven't returned to faith corporately because of the pain they experienced there. I was reading in Matthew one night and went from. Oh my goodness. I'm a kid that's always followed the rules and I was raised in a in a space where following the rules was the way to go and and you were good to go. And and now I'm reading in Matthew and I'm seeing that Jesus calls us to something beyond following the rules and that that the rules were more like a a border or a or a, a an area to stay kind of function within this. If you're functioning in love, you're going to function within the rules. And really started to recognize um what he had called us to, and that he called us to complete allegiance to the king. Um, and and that kind of that kind of wrecked me because I went from being able to beat my chest and and saying, well, I'm following the rules, I'm getting good grades. Uh, sometimes saying in youth group, I've got a dumb story, my story's not cool, uh, it's really really lame. Um, but then I learned from my parents who um, who came from some 
some rough backgrounds and their story became my story. And they said, God, we got this baby on the way. We don't know what to do with them. We don't know how to parent him. We don't know how to raise him up to, to follow you. Um, what do we do? Please show us what to do. And watching them seek out how to raise their two boys to be godly men uh, was really, really valuable to me. And most of what they learned was from Christ followers, but not in a a church formal setting. Um, And so they just, they kept teaching us what was right and would only reference what was wrong in order to help us understand why and how to pursue what is right and true and good. And so I had parents that taught in every moment and so when I came to this realization when I was 16 that I had to I had to live a life fully surrendered to Christ, I I I did. I I fully surrendered. I said I'm yours. Uh, the the call to pastoral ministry became clear and as I tried to navigate that um, within the United Methodist Church, they they handed me a book and they said, "Here's the process. This is how you become a pastor." And so I read it And I was reading the New Testament and I couldn't reconcile the process they had laid out against the process that Jesus laid out and then that his apostles um, executed. And and it wasn't that it was necessarily wrong. It just seemed to like it would be a hobble, like it would be a hindrance in the process. So I just started looking for places to minister, um, to disciple, to teach people who were already around me why it mattered to forgive people, why it mattered to love people. At, at this point, you're still in high school. Yeah. Yeah. This was, this is my kind of 16 to age 18 story of seeking out places to minister. And at this point, I was still a little focused on, well, I need to connect with this youth group or this outreach or, and along the way, I actually, by the time I was 18, I had people saying, well, Gerald, you should just start a church. Like all this other stuff is frustrating, but deep inside of me, it, it, God was making it clear that that we shouldn't bail on his church, on his people, simply because we're frustrated by something. Um, so I always stayed connected to something of church formal, but kept looking for opportunities to to encourage people, to, to foster hope in them. I hadn't yet learned about praying with people. Um, I, had, I was doing more praying for people and pretending I was praying for them and then forgetting about it and, um, but learning as I go. So, um, I continue in this process. Uh, we end up with a different church, uh, United Brethren Church, a small denomination that was born in the U S and I got connected with some really great people. Um, their Sunday service was a lot less formal and they had this prayer and share time. It was a way to really hear from from people's hearts and and what God was doing in and through them. And and so in a room full of 150 people that I didn't know, I felt like I was getting to know them. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then as that church grew, there's all this stuff about um, busting through the 200 barrier and busting through the 300 (laughs) barrier. And all this time we're in a we're in a rural setting. Um, So this church we're in. It's growing. Um, Y2K has happened. So so people returned to church because they thought the sky was falling because the year 2000 was going to wreck our computers. Um, there was a tragedy. Uh, a high schooler passed away, and that brought a lot of people to that church. So it was exploding in growth, and, and God was bringing people there. People were finding healing. The idea of large church mentality started to settle in, and we, and, and we were struggling to find a way to really stay connected. 
my wife and I, we got married at age 19. We got invited into leading the youngest small group uh, of, of people. And we were among 20 people being trained or 20 couples being trained to lead small groups. And it really clicked for us. Um, it made it made sense. We were a little frustrated by the idea that we were facilitators, pop a DVD in, ask these questions, make sure there's a meal. <laughs> You're leading a small group. You're the youngest leader of a group of young couples and yet you're you're not really being able to pastor these people or shepherd these people you're having to stick to you know answer a bunch of questions pop a cd or a dvd or something in uh did was there a tension going on inside of you that led you further forward in terms of what god was trying to do in your life oh absolutely um i yeah in that in that period of time um again looking at how Jesus interacted with people. Um, the reality that he would meet a need before he opened his mouth, he would feed people, he would heal people. Uh, and out of that, he would teach and he would, he would glorify the father. And so, um, we just didn't, the questions from those discussions were good. The talks from the DVDs, it was great information. Um, but we could, we weren't seeing where the people we were, we were caring for would, sh- would automatically like shift information to practice yeah. uh, and where we, the information wasn't automatically resulting in transformation. And so we saw this, this need to connect with people in meaningful ways, not just academically or cerebrally, um, but at a, like a brotherly, sisterly, uh, a, a community. So we started engaging um, in, well, food. I mean, sharing meals and then in our context, growing food too became a really good way to connect with people. You know, the reason that I asked that is we're doing so many, much and, and, and we're getting a lot of attention talking about microchurch. And I think it's wonderful because it affords the opportunity for crosstalk, for people to know each other, to get in each other's lives, all of that. Yet there is that tendency to just turn it into another information delivery system. Yeah. And I think that's the problem that always happens. You know, what people used to use the term witnessing uh, to share their faith. But as soon as that devolves into rather than we're sharing life and trying to find what's going on in the universe, and it happens to be named Jesus, we end up telling you stuff about Jesus. And so we we fall short of loving our neighbor as ourselves for one thing, but you said a, a minute ago about Jesus met needs before he opened his mouth. Uh, that element has to be there, that relational thing, or we're really not going to get very far. I, I want to ask another question, and um, this this just comes from something that, you know, as you described your parents. So your, your parents, as you described them, sound to me like the people that I was pastoring in that in those first few years. We weren't into legalism. My whole generation, or the generation coming right up, under me, they were searching for something and they weren't finding it in the traditional established church. And so they kind of, the whole hippie thing, the whole ethos was we're, we're looking for reality. We expect it to be organic. As you described your parents being good parents and the things that they were trying to do for you, it's like, oh man, I you know, I see these guys with the the bushy beards and the, the, the girls with the flowers in their hair and the, the long dresses. They were hungry for reality, and some of us 
were able to meet that and good things happened. Others kind of fell into that pit of legalism, but there is this hunger inside the heart of people. And it seems like you you came through the thing very, very well. But tell us a, a little bit, take us into the tensions that you felt. And then uh, you were going to talk to us a little bit about a walk that you had one night where the Lord began to really show you some things. Yeah. And, it, and it's on that walk where where there was a significant shift in my heart, uh, it began and it continues to get worked out. And it was probably the single most important tension that I that I experienced and still experience. So I had I had been praying for wisdom since I was eight years old when my dad told me the story of Solomon. And I was like, well, if, if he can pray for wisdom so he can take care of people or ask for it, why can't I? And my dad says, well, I guess you can. Let's, let's ask right now. And, and so I come to this place where I said, man, I'm 20 years old. People keep telling me I'm wise beyond my years. I got an old soul. Um, I, I had followed the rules. I was encouraging of people. But there was something more and, and an angst in there as I wanted to care for people. And I said, God, would you show me people's hearts the way that you see them? And that might sound like an awesome prayer, a great question. To be honest, when I was asking that, I was actually looking for, can I have more insight into their lives so that I can fix them with my wisdom? <laughs> uh, and, and I had this mentality because I could read things and then execute them. I could watch a, a video, execute it. I could watch somebody else execute it. For whatever reason, my brain worked that way. Well, what God showed me, he started showing me people's hearts, the way that he sees them. But really, he started showing me a deep love for them, His uh, the ache in his own being when people continually hurt themselves by living outside of the way he created them to function. And so he really began to soften my heart and helped me to see through through many experiences and just through walking with him in this, that, that people need us to come alongside them and care for them and that people need hope. They don't need to be fixed. And, and, and most people can't just make a decision and change their lives. In fact, later I went through things that brought on some coping mechanisms and some hardwired neural pathways that when certain things present in my life, it is a battle. To, to turn to the to, to being filled with the spirit instead of being drunk with whatever coping mechanism it, that our culture says it, I stuff my face with cheeseburgers and fries and a coke and nothing inherently wrong with those things but when you go to them instead of going to God and his people um, then it, it's certainly wrong so that that became a really valuable it's not even a teaching point I still feel like it's still a journey of seeing people's hearts, and even seeing past people's anger and treating me poorly in the moment, God moved me to a place where I could see their pain. I could see how they're trying to protect themselves. And it's given insight and, and in real time wisdom to, to be able to speak into their lives. So take us from, from, from where you were at that point to how you got to where you are now and, and how that's all working out. And, you know, I mean, we met each other at, at something that's all about making disciples and multiplying churches. And, and normally, I don't think we would think of that in a 100-year-old, 150-year-old church. Um, we know a lot of guys are dropping out of churches like that, and, and you're there, and, and God's working. And, and what's that all about? So in, in my calling to pastoral ministry, somewhere around age 19 or 20, I was attending a small 
Christian school uh, to get a bachelor's degree to pursue uh, licensing and, and ministry, kind of on a typical American track for such. And one day, um, it was one of the occasions where God spoke to me very clearly. And I was frustrated because while I was in school, it was getting in the way of ministering to people in my hometown. I was commuting away from my rural town, uh, 35-minute drive to school, 45-minute drive to work, young and married and connected as a, a sidekick youth pastor. Um, and so I'm, I'm like telling God how dumb this is. And his response to me was, Gerald, uh, here, well, here's why this matters. I said, God, why can't I just get a degree, golf clubs, a Cadillac, and a good salary in a big church, mm-hmm. uh, which I I didn't really want that, but it was this kind of caricature and, and like, I want this to be easier. And, and God says, you'll never get a degree. And I said, but I have to, he says, if you have a degree, you will trust you and the people you're serving will trust you and your credentials and you'll get the glory and not me. Wow. Now I have since learned that there was more pride in me than I thought. And it probably would have played out that way. And 18 years later, I don't have a degree and a denomination that has generally required a master's degree for ordination um, has put me on a track where only 90 undergrad credits has turned into, uh, well, take this class and that class and, um, and report back to us. And so now I'm finishing the formal process for ordination without a degree. Um, and I am, I'm in a spot where people say, wow, what you're doing is really great. And I say, praise God, because I, I didn't, I didn't even know this was a thing till I picked up Ralph Moore's making disciples book when I was in my early thirties, I just thought I was a crazy person. Um, and so from, from there, I did take more classes, um, but we were connected in a, in a youth group that broke out into small groups. We're teaching young adults in a small group setting and continuing with this, well, we got to be near enough, often enough to model for people, the way of Jesus. And, uh, we got to press into people's grief. We got to press into their opportunities to celebrate, to to show them where where God really is working in their lives, and help them to sense and see that. So we, we're continuing on this path, and I'm not. I'm getting turned down for every ministry job I apply for. And so as these youth get into adulthood, and they're connecting with our small group, we're we're teaching. We're we're in the scripture. Sometimes we're in each other's lives. We're, we're showing up in some local mission work. And along the way, we're, we're, we're seeing them start to invest in other people. And we're one of the few small groups that successfully hived off and had more small groups. Um, we only made it to three. Other people didn't continue on. It's not like it's this perfect silver bullet scenario. Um, and then in my mid-20s, I overheard this young woman in the nursery of our United Brethren Church. She's telling another person, you know, it's, yeah, it's so good to be in this place in life. And I've been in a church my whole life, but it wasn't until Kathy started teaching me about forgiveness and about uh, a, a life of sacrificial love and what Jesus has really called us into that I really started to get it. And now I feel like I can lead other people in these things. So I'm overhearing this thing when I'm picking my kid up in the nursery. And Kathy is somebody that my wife Kayla had taught and that we had invested in, in Kathy and her husband. And so I'm going, I'm standing there going, what, wait, 
No, why aren't you talking about Gerald and Kayla? Talk about <laughs> I love it. Them. And then, and then this wasn't an audible from God, but the Holy Spirit just pressed on me in a beautiful way. This is what it's supposed to look like. Yeah. You're a spiritual grandparent. And I was like, that is what it's supposed to look like. That is so cool that that we supported this this group of people and now they're teaching other people and we didn't even know. And 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 they don't these this next generation doesn't know our name. I mean they 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 knew us. They they could pick us out of a crowd, but they had no idea that we had been that influence in these people's lives. Wow. That was that was a major launching point for me to to go about life saying, if if I've got somebody's attention and I've got breath in my lungs and I've got the Holy Spirit, then I can live out this calling to pastoral ministry, whether people will let me have a microphone or not. Yeah. If you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to subscribe and check his blog at ralphmore.net.